Merry Christmas. Yeah, this is the nice thing about being Anglican or attending this church is that Christmas starts on the 25th and goes for another two weeks. And this is going to be the one Christmas message because last time was Advent and the coming one is Epiphany as I understand it. So Merry Christmas. You know, if there is one feeling that we are supposed to associate with the modern Christmas, it might be captured in the word wonder, right? Everybody wants to create a, an experience of wonder. Theme parks, stores, movies, films surrounding Christmas. And I think it's probably the feeling that when we become adults that you and I are most nostalgic for. The kind of, you know, that little bit of an erosion of wonder at Christmas happens as we get older and we remember the childhood experience somewhere. So, so what is wonder? You know, I think it's composed of two kind of feelings, right? One is the feeling of strangeness or newness, something that's extraordinary, which is to say out of the ordinary, even foreign to some degree. So wonder has that element of surprise, right? But it's also combined, such newness or novelty or extraordinary is combined with a feeling of wonder, something admirable, something beautiful, something amazing, so there's a sense in which wonder is that thing where we open up to something that is different and beautiful. That's the feeling of wonder wherever it occurs. It's an opening up to something larger, different, and amazing. I think it's easy to see how the modern Christmas experience tries to do that, right? You know, landscapes get transformed, trees come indoors, that's new. Home, stores, amusement park, they all kind of try to open up another world within the ordinary world that you see every day. Bicycles appear inside under trees, these kinds of things. I think probably as adults, we, you and I experience wonder more in travel, right? When we travel to new places, uh, international ones maybe especially, where the cultures are different, the people a little bit different, the food's a little bit different, and hopefully if it's a successful trip, all in a kind of a beautiful, amazing way. The old word for it is exotic, which has that E-X-O in it, the outward opening of exit, exotic, the opening out into, wow, this new world, this different world. That is kind of the adult version of wonderful. I'm dwelling on this for a moment at the beginning here because I think this passage is filled with words like this, astonishment, amazement, and the confusion that sometimes initially comes with things that are new and foreign to us. It's all over this passage here. You heard the story as it was read. It comes directly after the presentation of the infant Jesus in the temple, as Jim said, where we're told, by the way, that Mary and Joseph had performed in his infancy in the temple everything according to the law of the Lord. In other words, Luke is signaling to everyone that Jesus comes from a pious Jewish family. They're doing everything right in terms of the law. And here now, 12 years later in these next verses, they're again doing everything according to the law. They're taking the annual trip of Passover for Passover to Jerusalem. Not normally one in which women were required to go, but Mary comes along, again Luke indicating that they are a pious Jewish family. So they make the 80-mile trek from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. And after the full seven days of Passover, they begin their journey back, but one day in, 
to the journey home north to Nazareth, they discover that Jesus is not with them. Of course, what makes this passage relatable is this is every parent's worst nightmare. You cannot find your child. For ourselves, we wonder how is this possible that you could go a full day's journey and not know where your child is only at the end of the day when you get together for, you know, falafel and there's, um, and he's nowhere, your families eat together and where's Jesus? But I am reminded of my wife's experience. She often has nostalgia for her childhood. She was, grew up in a, in a neighborhood and a kind of a town where everybody knew everybody. And in fact, it was the kind of thing where she had aunts and uncles everywhere. You know, aunts and uncles aren't really aunts and uncles, but they're so close, they're called aunts and uncles, right? So they're all kind of laid out in Birmingham, in this area of Birmingham where she grew up. And, and the kids would take off in the morning on their bikes on a summer day, and you wouldn't see them the rest of the day. They might come home for dinner, but the parents didn't worry because they knew they were with these aunts and uncles or at these other kids' houses on their bikes, you know, and and, you know, you just didn't think about it. If you really needed to contact him, you'd start calling 10, 12, 13 family members or relatives, and, uh, you know, you'd eventually find the child. Well, this is the situation here. These trips to Jerusalem would be these long caravans of people from these villages and towns who would come down the Passover, maybe hundreds of people. And, you know, that's just this long parade down to Jerusalem, this long parade back up to Nazareth. And Jesus is somewhere, but it's fine. He's with somebody we know. And it was not until the evening that the first element of surprise, not quite wonder, but the element of surprise that precedes wonder occurs, though not a pleasant one, and they discover he's not there. Uh, Luke will call it in this passage, in Mary's voice, great distress, pretty close to the word trauma in this passage. So back to Jerusalem, they go for a day trip, and after three days of looking for him, they find him in the temple. Right, and Mary, of course, is relieved but can't hold back her consternation, right, at Jesus and says, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you. So here we have it. We have this first moment of kind of otherness, like, whose child is this? <laughs> that he would not tell his parents that he's staying behind in Jerusalem. This moment of foreignness, this little moment of a kind of exotic strangeness that occurs. But her anger is immediately softened, or at least combined with wonder, and Luke calls it astonishment in this passage, because what the parents saw, that it was he was speaking with the teachers of the law, the experts in the law in the temple. So Jesus was holding court with these leaders of the faith in the capital city. I mean, I remember Carly, my oldest daughter, at, the, at about the same age, 12, 13, took her school trip to Washington, D.C., to see the Capitol and the monuments and the institutions and whatnot. And it was as if, in flying back with her, we got to LAX and baggage claim and discovered, where is she? She's not here. And we went back to D.C., took the day's journey back to D.C. We find her in the federal court building talking with the Supreme Court justices. We would go, huh, that's astonishing. Our 12-year-old daughter is talking with Supreme Court justices. So they have astonishment. First strangeness, then astonishment, and now no doubt a little bit of admiration because we're told by Luke that the teachers themselves were, and I quote, amazed at his understanding and answers, Jesus's. It'd be hard for us to be righteously indignant in Carly if RGB said, your daughter is amazing. The other Supreme Court justice says, wow, she's incredible. 
I would kind of probably have to soften my anger a little bit. Thank you very much, I would say to them. Such is the dilemma Mary and Joseph are in. Jesus' response is not exactly satisfactory. He picks up on the word, your father and I, we were looking for you. And he says, would you not know that I would be in my father's house? Not something a pious Jewish boy would say to his parents. We're told that Mary treasured and pondered these things in her heart. That is to say, she wondered at them. Even though she knew in advance that Jesus was special, according to what Gabriel said, she still was trying to wonder who exactly her son was becoming. This is strange and wonderful. What is happening here? Well, I think Jesus, the boy Jesus, is discovering his vocation. I think he's discovering his vocation. And what is that? It's going to be to carry out the purposes of God, whom he intimately calls Father. Purposes that were established from the beginning and which in Jesus' language later on he will call the coming of the kingdom. That is his vocation, to inaugurate a kingdom. In other words, Jesus' calling will be to take the ordinary world and open it up into a transformed world taking what exists and letting the walls fall down into a new world. I'll say this passage is, is pretty symbolic because even here we see kind of four traditional elements of his faith that Jesus is going to take and push out, create something new, that actually is something old. We've already said that he seemed to respond to his parents with a new notion of family. And of course, this is one of the institutions of Jewishness that would have been sacred. And Jesus still considers it sacred. At the end of the passage, we're told that Jesus returned submissive to his parents. And yet even here we see Jesus pushing the walls out from an ordinary understanding of family to what he will later do, which is to expand the family of God, to create a new understanding which all people under Christ, under God, are his brothers and sisters, even the Gentiles eventually, which would be anathema to the teachers he's sitting with as a boy but would be in direct fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham in which the Jews were to be a light to bring the blessing to all nations. Jesus is beginning to open this world up even as a boy. I'm in my father's house. I'm where I should be with the family I should be with. The second kind of symbol of Judaism that Jesus is pushing the walls out on is the law. The law had become, though good, as Jesus said later, the law had become a way by which the Jews preserved their identity but also separated themselves from others. It had become a bounded faith with people who are out and people who are in. Jesus will later on say, you know what the law is all about? It's about love. It is exo. It is exotic. It moves out. 
The whole law, he says, can be fulfilled in love. Jesus is pushing the boundaries of the law out, not to something entirely new, but to something it was meant to be from the beginning, a vision of the good life for all. That's what the law is, by the way, isn't it? It's a vision of the good life. Can you imagine Sermon on the Mount being in a community where there was no greed, no lying, no adultery, generosity, wisdom, Jesus is pushing the law out and said, this is what was meant for everyone. The third symbol that Jesus, even in his boyhood place here, is at least symbolically pushing out is he's sitting in the temple with these teachers. The temple, of course, would have been the place for the real presence of God for the Jewish people, a place where he could be found It's where the life of God would take place. It's where forgiveness would come through the sacrificial system. And, of course, Jesus will transcend that temple. His next visit to the temple when he's an adult will be to clear it out and ultimately to replace the temple with himself. He is going to take God's presence and forgiveness on the road. He's going to push the walls of the temple out, even ultimately out into people's hearts our bodies become the human temples of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus taking family and creating a new world of family. Jesus taking the law and creating a new world of law. Jesus taking temple, creating a new world of temple. And finally, the fourth symbol we get in this little boyhood scene is, of course, God the Father. Jesus does use God the Father in very intimate ways throughout, but it's not just a personal relationship but an historical one. God instructed Moses back in Exodus to tell Pharaoh that Israel is his firstborn son. All of Israel was meant to be son or daughter. And God was meant to be father over all. And of course, what moment is this but the Exodus? It is the job of the father to bring them out into a bigger place, out into freedom, another exo, exodus the most important moment in Jewish history. And so in invoking his father, Jesus is invoking again, not just the intimate personal relationship with God, but an ongoing exodus and freedom that will now not just be a place and a new land, but a spirit of freedom from sin and newness. He brings us to another world. It's a story of wonder, this little boyhood story. It's a story where Jesus finds his vocation and begins, even in the symbols where he sits and learns and listens, he is figuring it out. He is figuring out his vocation, and he's figuring out the calling of his father on the whole world to create a new world within the world, to let the walls fall down, to let the ways open up to others. And this scene becomes pregnant with possibility, the boy sits in the temple with the teachers of the law, rethinking what family is and trying to discern what is at the core of his father's work in the world. It's lovely. It's a wonderful moment, one that is full of wonder. I don't have any pinpoint applications for you today. Nothing for you necessarily to go out and do immediately. I will say this for myself. It's, great. it's nice preaching, actually, you know, because I, I study then, <laughs> study the Bible. And whenever I get to preach on a gospel, I get to study, usually, Jesus. 
And I must say, every time I do, I'm amazed. I'm, I'm amazed. It's like my idea of Jesus keeps going like this. Just keeps opening out. It, it's, it's wonderful. And I guess my encouragement to you, especially for those of you who are nostalgic for the wonder of Christmas childhood, to say, well, you can still have the wonder of Christ <laughs> if the wonder of Christ must is fading. And I suppose my encouragement this to you this year is to take whatever your understanding of Jesus is now and keep returning to him. Let your notion of Jesus open out, let the walls fall down within the world of Scripture. For some of you who are readers, it'll mean reading more about Jesus. All of us are called to do what Jesus says, for we are called his friends, and to let him lead us in that opening out. I love what N.T. Wright says. You know, N.T. Wright, uh, I may have said this before, he just, he's, I, don't, I don't think he's read everything he's written. That's how much he's written. You can think about that later. But, you know, he's written this huge 700-page book on Jesus, and then another huge 700-page book on what happened right after Jesus, the disciples, the Acts, and the followers of the New Testament people of God. And then he's written, whatever, everything. Written on every passage of Scripture, no doubt. I may have told you this before, but somebody asked him, you know, what's your morning routine? He goes, ah, oh, you know what I do is I get up and have a cup of tea. He's British. That's the tea thing. And I open the Scriptures. And then he says, because you never know what will happen. And I'm thinking, if there's anybody who's going to know what's happening, it's N.T. Wright. <laughs> he knows exactly what's going to happen. He looks at a passage and he goes, I've written 300 words on that passage. Or maybe 300 pages. Ah, but he still has a sense of wonder. I could learn something more about Jesus, his mission, his father. You know, Jesus has written the score, but it still needs to be performed. It still needs to be performed in a thousand places. I think Chesterton said that, you know, the person who plays J.S. Bach poorly on the piano is still knows more about J.S. Bach than people who don't play at all. Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote, Christ can play in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes that are not his, through the features of men's and women's faces. That is our calling, too to perform the score Jesus has written and let him lead us into a more wonderful world, a broader one, that is the world as it was meant to be. So let yourself wonder, as Mary does. Treasure this up in your heart this coming year. Ponder it. Amen.